0: Take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. For several weeks, we have been talking about how the gospel impacts our daily lives, not just for salvation, but in every area of life. Um, it was interesting. I was just this week talking to a, a, a man who uh, is in ministry. And uh, he has been serving in ministry for many years, and he was telling me that uh, we were talking about what I've been preaching, and he said, was asking me, and I was telling him, and he said, you know, he said I was in ministry for about 15, 20 years before it dawned on me that the gospel is not just about salvation, that the gospel of Jesus Christ is about every aspect of our life, and it really is. And so, as we talk about this this morning, we want to touch on that. If you are in First Corinthians, is we're gonna kind of give a. I want to give a little summary as we get to where we are for our text today. But the study of the book of First Corinthians it doesn't take long until you notice that the reason that Paul was writing First Corinthians was because uh, there was a lot of problems in this church. Um, Paul wrote two books to them, and actually, if you study Scripture, you see that he probably wrote a couple others that we do not um, have in our Bible. But he he wrote these books to this church to to uh, deal with issues that kept coming up into this church, and they had a lot of problems that they were dealing with. At the beginning of the book, the verse, f- verses 4 through about verse 9, they're, they're in chapter 1, he, he's talking to about, them about things that he appreciates about them, and then he switches quickly into areas where they were struggling. If you look, we're not going to read it, but in verses 10 down to verse 17, he is talking about struggle they were having. They were rejecting authority. There was disunity galore in this church. This church was filled with contention and division. um, And they were having a big problem with this. Uh, They were having a problem with people who were walking around acting as if they were greater because of their spirituality. And they thought that they were more spiritual than other people. They were having a problem with cliques. People were saying, oh, I'm of this group and I'm of that group. And they weren't getting along in between. And so Paul begins to address these problems. As we go th- if you were to go throughout the rest of 1 Corinthians, you, were to see, you would see that, that these problems come up over and over and over again, and, and Paul continues to address them. But as we come to the end of chapter 1, starting in verse 18, Paul begins to refute the problem, one of the main problems that they were having, and is that is they were relying on worldly wisdom they were relying on on personal skills and 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 physical strength and financial wealth they were relying on the wrong things instead of relying on the wisdom of the gospel man is has a tendency to do that man has a tendency to to hang on to his intellect and hang on to his strength and, and, and oftentimes to the detriment of um, themselves. Um, I was looking this week and some of you maybe have seen uh, examples of man's wisdom that has fallen flat in their face. Um, I was looking at some inventions this week. I just want to share some with you because uh, I think they're humorous and uh, I think you guys need to wake up a little bit. So we're going to do that. Um, Do you know back in the 1930s, um, our nation and many other nations were not long after the World War I, and so they were trying to find better ways to fight a war. And so they were coming up with inventions of, hey, this would be a better way. And so a man decided, he said, I think there's a great invention. And so he was going to invent a flying tank. The tank was, the purpose of this was that so when, when soldiers would go into the battlefield, that they could fly in a tank and land it uh, right behind the soldiers and it would be off. And so this man began creating this flying tank. Now you may think, well, isn't that like a you know fighter jet or something? Yes, but we're talking the 1930s. Those didn't exist. And so the man actually, here's a picture of it. He created a flying tank. You say, well, it seems to work. No, this is the only time that they ever got it off the ground. Because after that, they couldn't get it off the ground. Once they loaded it with, with weapons and people, that didn't get off the ground. And so obviously this uh, invention of man's wisdom fell flat on its face. There was another one I was reading about, and that was a product called the Mesh Baby Cage. You say, alone, just alone the name doesn't sound very good. Okay, most of you as mothers would be appalled to know what this is about. In the 1930s, or 30s and 40s, there was families that lived in large cities like New York City and London and others that were having a problem. They were having a hard time finding out how to get fresh air for their kids. They lived in apartment buildings and they didn't know how to get fresh air. And so they created these mesh baby cages and they are what they sound like. It was a cage that they would stick out, oh, out of their window that would hang up over this large apartment building wherever it was. Sounds a little bizarre, doesn't it? But they became very popular, in fact, in some places in these large cities so that kids could get fresh air. Here's another one. If that one doesn't scare you, here's another one. Do you see a problem with that? It looks good to you. Yeah, there we go. There's Ken James. Okay. Yeah, there's a problem with that. And so the problem became revealed when it malfunctioned and a, and a baby fell and died. So since that time, they no longer produce this item. There was another one, a man by the name of Franz Reichel. He decided he was going to create a wearable parachute. Now again, this was, about, this was not long after planes be, were invented. And so parachute was a new concept. And so he thought if I could make this thing that I can wear and I could, um, you know, you could jump out of a plane and, and immediately, the way it was supposed to do is immediately when you came out of the plane, it would immediately open up. And so he decided to test it out and so he would go up into large buildings and he would put this parachute on a test dummy, not a real person although I think that might be the case as I get to the end of the story. But uh, he put it on this test dummy, and they would put it out, and sometimes it would work, and sometimes it didn't. Well, Rachel thought he had all the kinks worked out, and so he decided to put his faith in his product in himself. And so he was a French man. He got permission to climb up the Eiffel Tower, and so he went up to the top of the Eiffel Tower, and he put on his, um, his wearable parachute, and he jumped You can only imagine what took place. It got tangled up in his legs, and he plummeted to his death. Now, what's interesting is there's actually a video online about this because this was a big deal because there was thousands of people watching. We think about those things, and I give you those. In some ways, they're sad. In some ways, they're humorous of man's foolishness. But so often what we do is we take our intellect and our own worldly wisdom and we think that with that we will survive. That we think that's enough. And that is what Paul is addressing in this passage to the church at Corinth. Was those who claimed to be wise and yet weren't. And they were using their wisdom in a way, as he said in these previous verses, they were using their wisdom in a way that was actually dividing The church. And it was actually promoting themselves and and promoting not the glory of God, but the glory of who they were. And so Paul began to go through and and show these people that their so-called wisdom was worthless. And, And and it could not save anyone. Nor could it further the cause of Christ. And all it did was destroy, bring division, and uh, oppose the gospel. And I think that the problem is today, so often we rely on, on the gospel for our salvation, but then we get beyond that and we rely on our own gifts, our abilities, our talents, our intellects. And what God tells us is that when we do that, we are going to see that just like these foolish inventions, we will fall flat on our face, spiritually so as far as Paul is concerned, these people were not truly wise. So today I want to look at this passage and I want to learn from what Paul has to say to refute these problems in the church with the wisdom of, of the gospel. Let's go ahead and read this passage. You can follow along as I read. It's a longer passage. It starts in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 18. And I'll read down to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 5. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved is the power of God, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Who is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For the Jews demand, a, demand signs and the Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jew and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, and my speech and my message we're not in plausible words of wisdom but in demonstration of the spirit and of power so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of man but in the power of God let's pray god as we look at this text today lord we can't probably study it to the level that we can understand every aspect of it but lord as we look into it i pray that you'll help us to know what it is you want us to learn today. Lord, I come this morning weak. I come this morning feeling lost without you. Lord, as we look into your word, we see so often men and women would rise up and try to do things in their own strength and their own power, and yet they often failed. And we know that the only way we will succeed is if we trust and rest in the wisdom of your word and the wisdom of the gospel. So Lord, I pray that you'll help us to understand how you used what seemed foolish to accomplish the greatest work that is ever done. Lord, I just pray you'll help me as I preach, help me to have your words, not my own. And we thank you again in Jesus' name, amen. Look at three aspects this morning as we talk about the contradiction between the, the wisdom of this world and the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, <clears throat> excuse me, the first point is the gospel of Jesus contradicts the wisdom of the world. We see that in verses 18 through 25. I won't read all of it again, but the Apostle Paul, he's trying to establish in this section that worldly human wisdom cherished by unbelievers opposes the wisdom of God. It is against it. The, the, the people he's talking to here in Corinth, the Corinthians, they based their, their, the way they were running their church on human wisdom, and, and, and Paul is saying, look where it got you. There's division, there's fighting, there's this war going on in the church, and it's all because you're trying to do it in and of your own strength, in and of your own wisdom. And He was trying to re- reveal to them that they had forgotten a basic truth that God opposes the wisdom of the world. There's two things we need to know here. First of all, human wisdom views the cross as foolishness. This is an amazing thought. Look at verse 18 again. It says, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. Now, for many of you, you have heard the gospel your whole life. You have heard that Jesus Christ came to earth as a man. He was the Son of God. And, and he died. Why did he die? We've talked about this for the last few weeks. He died to pay the penalty for your sin. See, every single person who has ever walked on this earth except Jesus Christ was a sinner. That means we did that which is against the character of God. We disobeyed God. We, we were unruly. We were uh, misbehaving. We were all of these things. And so because of that, the Bible says that the, the penalty for that sin is death and separation from God in hell. God did not want that because God loves us, and so God sent Jesus Christ to earth, and he became man, a humble man, and he humbled himself enough that he died for for sins he did not do, for a penalty that he did not commit, but yet he did it for you because it's your only escape from your sin. Now, for many of you, you've heard that your whole life, and you sit there and you go, yeah, I get it. But what, what here, what Paul is saying to the church at Corinth is to the, to the unbeliever, that is just foolishness. To think that you could be redeemed from your sins, to think that you could be rescued in any way by the death of someone else, is folly. See, for the Jews, it tells us in this passage, look if you will at verse 22. The Jews, when, when Jesus came, they wanted a sign that he was the Messiah. See, they had heard about the Messiah. They had heard about this one who was going to come and rescue them for their entire lives. And, and so they were waiting for him. And so they wanted a sign. And throughout the gospel account, we see numerous times where they came to Jesus and said that. Look at Matthew chapter 12. It says this, and then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. They, they wanted him to, to perform something so that they would know. And Jesus' response was, you're in an evil generation, evil and adulterous generation. We see in chapter 16, they the Pharisees and the Sadducees came to test him. They asked him to show them a sign. We see these in other places. And, and, and they said, we want a sign that you are the Messiah. See, the reality is, is they didn't really want a sign. Because the reality is, is Jesus was constantly giving the sign. He performed miracles over and over again, but it didn't satisfy them because he didn't perform according to their asking. And so they reasoned in their minds that the true Messiah would do exactly as they asked. And so Jesus Christ could not be the true Messiah. And because of that type of reasoning, they rejected Jesus. The Jews and their wisdom assumed that Jesus would give him a sign, and when he didn't, they didn't believe him. But notice in verse 22, it says, the Jews demand a sign. They didn't get it. And so because of that, it was foolishness to them. But then it says the Greeks, or or it could be, uh, the term could be Gentiles, it could be that as well, those who are not Jews. It says they seek, Wisdom. Now, it's, he's specifically here talking to people in Corinth, which is uh, in Greece, and so that, that's, he's specifically talking to the Greeks, but it's all Gentiles, and the idea there is they s- were seeking after wisdom. You see, who Paul was talking to in this book, now there was some Jews in there, but primarily he's talking to Greeks. Most of these people he's talking to is Greeks, and they didn't demand a miracle like the Jews did. But instead, they exalted the standard of their pagan philosophy. They they were known. Ancient Greece was known as well known as a place of influential philosophers and teachers and leaders. and And some of you have studied those when in, when you study history. These guys who who were very intellectual and these guys who had incredible reasoning power and and were great teachers and that's what they prided themselves in. And their pride was was sophisticated. And their philosophy was elevated. And they believed in that. And so in their sophistication, they would believe in all sorts of gods because, you know, maybe this God wasn't enough. And so they'd create this God over here and they'd create another God. And we, in fact, we come to uh, Acts and Paul is, is preaching in Athens and he comes to them. You remember this passage? He's, he's preaching. And he stands up in the midst of them and he says, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you're religious because they were religious people. He says, but I I passed along and I observed the objects of your worship. And you see, you would go through Athens at this time and you would see all over the place statues and monuments to these many, many, many gods. Because in their own reasoning power, they felt, hey, if one god is good, how about multiple gods? And, And maybe we missed out. And so they came up with another god called an altar to the unknown god. And the idea of that was, you know, maybe in all our efforts to make a God, we've, we've missed one. And Paul says, hey, you are very religious, but in some ways you think that you are wise enough to figure out how to overcome any possible hole in your religious structure. They were loyal to their own rational thinking powers. But it was according to their own human standards of wisdom. The Jews viewed that they needed a sign. The Greeks said, hey, we're, we're intelligent. We can, we can rationalize through things and we'll figure out. And so when Jesus Christ came to earth and he died on the cross, the Bible tells us it was, it was folly to them. It was foolishness. The gospel was in many ways ridiculous. And the Jews, it says, if you continue reading on, look at verse 23. It says, but we preach Christ crucified. And was it say? A stumbling block to the Jews. Why was it a stumbling block? Let me explain that. It was a stumbling block because the Jews viewed the cross of Christ as a demonstration that Jesus was cursed. We see that in Galatians. It says there, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Where does that come from? That comes from the book of Deuteronomy. When God gave them the law, they, would, they were told that um, if someone commits a crime, that is a, a, a crime that is worthy of the death penalty. That you would place them on a tree and you would hang them. And in that passage in Deuteronomy, it says this and whoever hangs on a tree is cursed. And so for the Jews, here they are, they look and not only did Jesus not give them a sign, but he died. But not only did he die, this one who was claiming to be the son of God, this one who was claiming to have all authority and all power, was killed on a tree. So he was cursed. and That became a stumbling block to them. And most Gentiles, on the other hand, could hardly imagine, it goes on, it says that, that to the Jews it was a stumbling block, but to the Gentiles or to the Greeks it was folly because for these Gentiles they could hardly believe or imagine a more ridiculous religion than one that proclaimed that salvation came through the death of one man on a Roman cross. The Greeks reasoned in their minds that they could not believe or trust for salvation in a God who could not even overcome his human enemies but died at the hands like a common thief. And so you see that Paul is writing to people and he's reminding them of something. The cross is foolishness to those that do not believe. We look in our society today and and not a lot has changed. There are some that still seek a sign. There are some that are still waiting for this, this bright light. We live in a culture of, of entertainment. And so because of that, I mean, people are constantly looking for some kind of sign. You know, if, you, if God would just reveal... I, I, was, I was sharing the gospel with someone a couple years ago and they said that to me. They said, If God would just reveal himself to me through a miracle, then I would believe. Just like the Jews. If God would just show us a sign... And they hope that God will somehow jump through hoops that they have made. Because they can't believe the simple truth of the gospel. And they hope that somehow God would maybe rescue them from from their their human ailments, including poverty or sickness. And if God can't do that for them, then they cannot believe. On the other hand, there's still people like the Greeks who, who believe that the cross is foolish. We live in a culture today where many people will discount what we believe as Christians as being ignorant, as being foolish, as being a people that we're a bunch of naive, ignorant people. Why? Because somehow they have rationalized in their mind, they have reasoned in their minds that there has to be some sort of human effort involved in salvation. That there has to be some sort of human effort involved in that which saves us from our sins. And you see the human wisdom thinks the cross is foolishness. And that's what Paul is addressing with them. He's reminding the Corinth believers that that the wisdom of this world says that the, the cross is foolish. But the reality is, is that the the work of Christ is wise and powerful. Look at verse 24, he says, But to those who are called, those who are believers, those who have been sanctified, those who have been set apart uh, by Jesus Christ, by the blood of Jesus Christ, those who have been called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is what? Is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Paul explains that it was God's sovereign pleasure to choose something that the wise of the world would consider foolishness, the crucified Savior. And by ordaining this seemingly foolish means of salvation, God made the world's so-called wisdom to be foolish. He goes on in verse 25, and he describes that. He says, so... For the foolishness of God. Now, it is not describing God as foolish. What it is describing here is it's saying this. Now, that which seems foolish, the cross, the thing that the world looks at and says, that just doesn't make any sense. What does he say here? The the, the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. Although the Jews and the Greeks rejected the true gospel because it did not meet their standards, one group, the called out group, the the ones who have been sanctified that he is talking to here in in this group in Corinth, they joyfully accepted the gospel of the cross. And when God's grace touched their lives, their old standard of judgment fell away, whether it was seeking a sign or whether it was their rational thinking and their wisdom, and they saw with new eyes and understanding that the gospel of the crucified Lord had the power to rescue them from the dominion of sin, from the darkness, and bring them to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. See, we can't rescue ourselves from the bondage of sin. We can't rescue ourselves from the punishment of sin, but by the power and wisdom of God, through Christ Jesus, we can be saved. If you're here this morning and you have not placed your faith in Jesus Christ, maybe you're trying to trust in in the fact that you're here this morning to save you. There will be a lot of people that will, will receive eternal punishment in hell who went to church. This does not, walking in this door does not save you. There are a lot of people who are trusting in some other avenue of good works to to get them into heaven. And here's the thing, is your worldly wisdom, your wisdom that you rationalize in your mind that that's okay, does not come from the Word of God, because the Word of God says that salvation comes by the hands of something the world calls foolishness, which is the belief in Jesus Christ who died. For your sins, so the gospel of Jesus contradicts the 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 wisdom of man. Secondly, the grace of the gospel contradicts the pride of man. If we continue on in verse twenty six, uh, the Paul is trying to remind those in Corinth that they needed to remember something about the status of the world that they were when they were called. If you look at the verse twenty six, he says, "For consider your calling." In other words, brothers. He says there, in other words, what he's saying to them is remember where you came from. When they received the gospel, most of them were not wise by human standards. They were not influential of noble birth. They were not not mighty in any way. They had no basis to assert superiority over others or to boast that they had wisdom, status, or power. They had nothing to claim. When they were called, they believed the simple truth of the gospel, that they were sinners in need of a savior and they were saved by grace. They were saved by the work of Jesus Christ and the work on the cross. This passage clearly teaches us, as Paul explained to them, that none of us are more superior than others just because we are believers. Because when we think we are, then what we've done is we've, we've uh, clung on to that worldly wisdom. And so that is what, what we are hanging on to. Because there should be no division among us. If we believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, then we believe that all of us come broken, all of us come empty, all of us come sinful, and and all of us receive the the grace of God. And so because of that, there should be no division among us. Because we should be following the, the wisdom of the gospel. In order to dispel any remaining pride, Paul reminded them why they believed the gospel. It was not because they were wise or powerful enough to receive salvation. It was because of God that they were in Christ. Look, if you will, in this passage, let's look down. It says in, in verse 28, God chose what is lowly, low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. What's he talking about? What is he talking about when he says God chose the foolish, God chose the weak? Uh, what is he, God chose the lowly? He's talking about Jesus Christ. God chose that which according to human standards was, was nothing to bring to pass what he needed to do. We continue on. He says why? Verse 29, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. It's so that we can't say, stand up and say, look, look what we've accomplished. Look what we've done then he says an interesting thing look at verse 30 and because of him because of god because of the work of jesus christ you are in christ jesus who became to us wisdom from god what paul is reminding the church in corinth there is that they have a wisdom now but it's not a wisdom of their own he goes on in that verse and he says in a righteousness He's trying to remind them that they have a righteousness, but it is not their own. We have no righteousness apart from Jesus Christ. Do you understand that? When God looks down, he does not look down, and we just honored three men. God does not look down and, and say, man, I am so impressed with these three men. He looks down and he sees the righteousness of God at work in them. Anything that we can stand up and say, hey, I, I did this. It's not because of anything of us. It's because of God that works in and through us. And he's saying here in this passage that we cannot boast in that. because It's because of God that we have wisdom. It's because of God that we have righteousness. It's because of God that we have been sanctified and we have redemption. It is all because of God. If, you were, uh, if, if it were not for him and his righteousness, we would all be doomed to hell. Christ is our holiness, and there's nothing about ourselves that would set us apart and make us holy before a holy God. Nothing. There's nothing about me that could stand before a holy God except for the righteousness and and the sanctification that is in Christ Jesus. Christ is our source for our holiness. He was our strength that enabled us to live a holy life and to set us apart. He is our redemption. Because he bought us with a price. And then look at verse 31, a conclusion of this section about the grace of God. He says, so that, all of this is in conclusion of, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So when you stand up and say, hey, I've accomplished this, you're missing the point. And see, the church in Corinth, that's what they were doing. If you, if you look back, if you will, in, in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, look at verse 12. It says, What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I am Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? See, what they were doing is they were standing up and they were not boasting in Christ, they were boasting in themselves. And it was creating this division in the church. So when we boast about how good we are, or about how holy we are, about how our salvation, the salvation we have, we should do, as Paul told the Corinthians, to boast in the Lord. The grace of the gospel contradicts the pride of man, and then finally the work of the gospel contains no wisdom of man. In this next passage in verses 1 through 5 of chapter 2, Paul then begins to Uh, his argument here is that he did not present the gospel according to the world's wisdom. He did not employ logic or sophisticated speech. He focused his attention on the central theme of Christ's death. What was his central theme? Look at verse 2. Verse 1, he says, I didn't come to you with lofty speech or wisdom, but what did he say in verse 2? For I declared to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul says, "I my only goal was that you would see Jesus. Let me explain something about Paul. In the book of Philippians, Paul is talking about all his worldly accolades. And, and, and at the end of the passage, I just want to clarify this because so, he's not boasting on himself. Because at the end of the passage, he says, all of my work, worldly accolades are, are worthless. But in the process of explaining all of his uh, worldly accolades, he says this about himself. He says, concerning the law, I am a Pharisee. Now oftentimes we read that that term Pharisee and immediately because of how much Jesus uh, had to confront the Pharisees, immediately we think, uh, automatically, everything we think about Pharisees is, is these guys are bad guys. And they were in some ways. But the reality to become a Pharisee was a big deal. So let me explain to you just briefly what that meant. See, in Jesus' day, there was three levels of education. Okay, Every child between the ages of 6 to 12, uh, boy or girl, would go to the synagogue to learn how to read and write. They would go and they would learn every single day how to read and write, and their, their textbook was the Torah. What is the Torah? The Torah is the first five books of the Bible, the law. And so they would study the law in every single day. So the point was, by the time they reached the age of 12, every child between the ages of 6 and 12 would have memorized the entire Torah. I'm going to take a stab in the dark that there's no one in here who has memorized the entire Torah. By the time they were 12, they would have memorized the the Torah. And so let's put this into perspective a little bit. That is roughly 6,000 verses, meaning that they had to memorize from the time they were 6 until the time they were 12. Every day they had to memorize three verses. Understandable. Understanding that in the time that they were writing, there was no such thing as verses. But trying to put it in human perspective here for us. That was the first level of education. Now, at the age of 12, what would happen is most of the Jewish boys and girls would go out now and, and they'd begin a trade. The girls would go home and they would learn how to do the things at home, the cooking and, and the cleaning and the maintaining of the house, the, the raising of a garden and, and all those sort of things. The boys then would go out, most of the boys, that were, once they reached 12, would go out and they would learn a trade, whether it was carpentry or, or any other trade, they would learn these trades. Now, the best of the best, would then continue on to the next level of education. This level was called Bet Midrash. Now, this was uh, during the time of 12 to 15, and during those three years of 12 to 15, they would memorize the rest of the Old Testament. I mean, imagine that. I don't think there's any in here that would probably admit that you've read and memorized the entire... Some of you, you know, maybe haven't even read through the Old Testament. They memorized the entire Old Testament. They get to the age of 15, and the best of those best were then chosen um, by a, handpicked by a rabbi to then be personally taught for 15 years, from the time they were 15 until the time they were 30. If they managed to get through all of that education, then they were referred to as. A Pharisee. See, we often look and we think, man, these guys, they were wicked, but they knew the Bible. And so when Paul made this comment, that of, as concerning the law, he was a Pharisee, Paul was not boasting in and of himself. He was talking about what he had done. And then later in that passage, I already said, he said, and all that is worthless. You say, why are you saying all this? Because what Paul did, if you notice again, in chapter 2, verse 2, he says, I've decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. What Paul stood up and said was this. He said, you know, I could espouse my wisdom to you from an earthly perspective. I could I could regale you with all of my intelligence. And at the end of the day, you would step back and say, wow, Paul, you are brilliant. And Paul says, I didn't care about any of that. All I wanted you to know is that Jesus Christ died for you. You see, Paul was trying to make a point. He was trying to tell These people that the center of his teaching while he was with them was Jesus Christ. He had determined to teach nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. This true gospel message that he's talking about opposed the human arrogance, the human wisdom, and it was simply a display of the power of God for salvation. And what had happened was these people in Corinth, uh, they had used this human wisdom, whether it was uh, from the Bible or whether it was from themselves, they they had taken their own logic and their own thinking, and they had caused division. And they had caused problems in the church that were contrary to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this was also, just as it says in Ephesians, that it is not by our own works but by the grace that we are, of God that we are saved. If salvation or the gospel message needed intelligence or power or anything else in order to work, then it would no longer be by the grace of God. It doesn't mean that we have to walk around and be people who don't have knowledge. No, that's not what we're saying. I'm not saying that it doesn't mean we don't memorize Scripture. I believe that we should memorize Scripture. But I think that we should understand that the the central power in all of this, the central, the the vein that runs through everything is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Continue reading in verse 3. He says, And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. I find it interesting about Paul. Paul was a guy who he had accomplished a lot. And yet he says, I came to in weakness and in fear. I was explaining to someone recently that there's, there's times when I get up to preach that uh, I'm nervous. And they were like, you still get nervous? All the time. And you know, I'll be honest with you, the times when I am not apprehensive is when i really worry because the times when i'm not apprehensive or i get up with confidence in myself is when i'm i'm not proclaiming the gospel the way that he wants as Paul said there, he says, I was with you in weakness and fear and much trembling. My speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and the power. It was not through anything I had done. Why? Look what he said in verse 5. Why is all that? Why did he come in weakness? Why did he come in fear? Why did he, why did he come with, with uh, 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 this, this sense of that it was the Spirit of God working his life? He says, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. See, oftentimes we fall into the same trap that the people in Corinth did, and that is we fall into this trap of of human wisdom. We rely on human wisdom and ultimately arrogance to to, uh, compete with fellow Christian uh, members, to compete with other church members, and Paul was making it very clear in this passage that this practice contradicted the gospel of Jesus Christ, the wisdom of God, which the uh, the, the Corinth had placed their faith in for salvation, had, had somehow been destroyed or had been overcome by the wisdom of men. And they had allowed that, the wisdom of men to creep in. What we need to remember is that this passage here was written to a church. These were believers. It's intended to remind us that our lives as a church uh, cannot be through the wisdom of men, but through the, the power of Christ. Imagine, if you will, for a moment, um, if your child is at home, or, or maybe when you had children when they were younger, and they have a friend over playing. And they're playing in the family room and they're, they're messing around, and I'm sure this has never happened to any of you or your children. They're playing around and and one of the boys falls over onto a side table that's sitting on there and and it breaks and one of the legs falls off. These two boys are playing and suddenly they're like, "Uh uh-oh, we're in trouble. So the one boy goes into his bedroom without his mom knowing and he goes into his desk and he finds in there Elmer's glue. And he takes that Elmer's glue and he goes back to the family room and he puts a little bit on the leg. It's cracked in the middle and he puts it in. He's like, "Mm, well, hopefully that'll hold. And they set the table up and they kind of put something in front of it so when they walk in the room and they look at the table, it looks perfect. And then what happens on, later on, mom comes in and she's reading a book and she takes the book and she puts it on the table and suddenly the whole table goes... You know, maybe the table looked fine, but it didn't handle the weight of the things placed on it. This passage that we're reading is telling us that reliance on human wisdom will never hold up the table of our lives. When things go bad, we, we, we think if I just prop it up in my own way, if I just use human wisdom and I, and I just do this, that, that I'll be okay. And We try to prop up our lives. We try to prop up our church with human wisdom. And, and some try to seek their own ways rather than the glory of Christ. And some try to serve in the church by using their own powers and yet things start to fall uh, apart around them. They don't understand why and they're asking God and God's saying, hey, it's because you were trying to do it in your own wisdom, your own power, your own strength, your own skill. And it can't be done. And Paul is making it very clear in this passage that reliance on human uh, intelligence and wisdom is like propping up a table in a way that will eventually send it crashing to the ground. As the body of Christ, we need to rely solely on the wisdom of Christ revealed in the gospel. And that gospel that we've been talking about should impact not not just our salvation, but it should impact the decisions that we make as a church. And we have a job to do. And that job is to spread the gospel as a church, and we cannot do it through the wisdom of man, but through the wisdom of the gospel. Let's pray. God, we are thankful for the teaching of this passage, Lord, even when we don't intend to, we oftentimes find ourselves living and working through our own wisdom. And sometimes we work so hard through our own wisdom and our own strength and our own power and we don't we don't call on you through prayer and through the gospel. And, and suddenly we look back and we realize that We didn't succeed, and we question why. Lord, I pray that you'll help us to take that gospel that that we used as our power of salvation and to make it our power for each and every aspect of our life. Lord, we thank you. I pray that you'll help us to completely give our lives over to you. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.